0: What's your name?
1: My name is Johnny Dosco.
0: What's the name of your new book?
1: Good night, M.
0: What's the subhead of your book?
1: <laughs> Baseball and life through haiku.
0: If you write more than one haiku, what is the plural word for haiku?
1: <laughs> it's haiku. It's like it's like deer.
0: So singular and plural, it's haiku.
1: Yes, and you know, Josh, I didn't know that. I. I my original title for the book was "Baseball Haikus." No, it was haikus about baseball and life. And I sent it to my sister, and she said, "You know, that's that's all well and good, but you know, haiku is singular and plural. I mean, I've, used, I've seen it written where it's baseball haikus or something haikus, whatever. But it's it's uh, it's actually haiku is singular and plural. So it's haiku."
0: Coming up on this edition of Life Around the Seams, we will give you just what you wanted. Grammar lessons. Lots and lots of grammar lessons. No, I'm just kidding. We have had Johnny D on this podcast before, and we laughed a lot discussing his life and his career. When the coronavirus is not canceling the minor league baseball season, Dosky is the voice of the Sacramento Rivercats. That's the Giants AAA affiliate. For his return to this podcast, we will use his new book, a collection of haiku, to talk about baseball and life. Johnny Dosko is next on Life Around the Scene.
1: Former Major League Pitcher Jim Bowden once wrote, You spend a good piece of your life gripping a baseball, and in the end, it turns out, it was the other way around all the time. Welcome to Life Around the Scenes, a podcast about baseball people who have interesting stories from between the lines, and sometimes even more interesting stories outside the lines. Here's your host, Josh Sushan.
0: Hey, Mr. Dosky. It is, uh, it is good to see you via Zoom. Uh, we have talked many times during this pandemic. Um, it is not the same not being able to go to Rayleigh Field and welcome you to Isotope Spark, but I'm glad that we can uh, catch up here. That's right.
1: Don't forget Sutter Health Park. New name.
0: That's right. Sutter okay. Health Park. Okay, so we're going to get into haiku.
1: Yeah.
0: But first, let's make sure that everybody knows. According to Wikipedia, haiku is a type of short Form poetry originally from Japan. Now, in the traditional haiku structure, it is a poem that consists of three lines with 17 syllables in total. The first line is five syllables, the second line is seven syllables, the third line is five syllables. Now, modern haiku vary widely on how much they follow these traditional elements, but would you say that your haiku follow the more modern approach or that they follow the traditional or a little bit of both?
1: Well, I would say traditional with the five seven five for sure. Now, I know that a lot of uh, traditional uh, authors of haiku would say if you're not talking about nature, then it's not uh, traditional haiku. But I disagree with that. I think haiku can be about anything. So I, yeah, I do do the five seven five format, and uh, I, I stick with that. And not—they're not all about about nature. Most about baseball
0: how often are you writing one and you go, okay, this is like a five, six, five, or this is a five, nine, five, you know, like some weird double play. It's a yeah, it it's <laughs> when he's like three, the, five, seven, five,
1: right? Like with the shift of five, six, three, exactly. <laughs> right. You know, it, it, it's funny cause there are some, uh, some that I wrote originally that weren't right. Uh, they, 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 didn't, they didn't fit and you have to kind of structure it. So it is five, seven, five. And you know, my sister sent me some haiku that she wrote, and they weren't 575. And, and I said, those aren't 575. And she said, you know what? So what? Who's making the rules, you know? So there are people who can, you know, I think it's 575, but, but there are people that write them so-called haiku that, that maybe they aren't the traditional uh, 575 syllables. But I, I don't know, man. To me, it's, it's got five, five to be 575 to be a real haiku. That's just me.
0: Well, you've been writing haiku for a while, and you've often sent them to me and other people. And uh, but when did you when did you first find that writing haiku was something that you enjoyed and that you were uh, that you excelled?
1: You know, my my brother. Thank you for saying excel. Uh, but I will say that my brother got me into haiku when I was a lot younger. I used to, you know, I used to write them all the time on Southwest flights. i write them on the Southwest magazine and write, you know. Ten fifteen every flight, but I never kept those. I, I regret that because it just, it, 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 you're kind of lost in your thoughts and you write these haiku and, and it was so much fun to write those on those Southwest flights, made the flight go faster. And um, so it's something I've, I've always loved to do. And, and so this, it, this was something that, you know, writing them outside during the quarantine Help pass the time, and it was just uh, very peaceful for me to go outside and write them. But I used to write them on Southwest flights all the time. and the, You know, the coast, we'd go to all these different cities, so they, they were fun to write.
0: So are you telling me that if I was on a Southwest flight, and I was in the row or the seat that you were in just before, and I started to go through the Southwest magazine, I would see your haiku that you had written and left? In, you know, in, in front of me, I would, I would get your haiku.
1: Absolutely. There are people that saw my haiku, Strangers saw my haiku. I never took the Southwest Flight uh, magazine with me. I, it was idiotic. I probably would have had a collection before this because I, I feel I wrote, wrote some good haiku back in the day in the Southwest magazines. But, yeah, if you would have picked up a magazine, you would have said, what is this guy's writing haiku about the sky and about
0: this flight and what, what is going on here? So, yeah, you definitely would have seen that for sure. Well, well, maybe you just made that person's flight better. Maybe they tuned in to find out the five best steakhouses in Texas, and instead they got the wit and wisdom of Dosky. <laughs> well,
1: yeah, if, if they liked them, yeah. I mean, Hiker's not for everybody. But, yeah, so <laughs> I think, uh, yeah, people would have, would have been I had a, a nice little surprise if, if they would open up those magazines for sure.
0: All right, well, it's a nice surprise opening up this book and going through them, and let's see. So I see page 199 is the last one. And the first one is on page five. So 194, 195? 198,
1: to, 198 total.
0: 198 total.
1: 198 total. Okay. Yep.
0: So how long does it take you to write 198? And how many ended up on the on the editing room floor for this?
1: <laughs> yeah, you know, it, it, I wrote 440 and cut yeah, I wrote four forty and cut it down to two hundred, and then we uh, my wife and I kinda edited out two. At the end, so it was 198. And the the one that didn't make the book that was the last cut is one about Bo Jackson that will be in the next haiku book that I write. Is I think it's a wonderful haiku. We kind of went back and forth. She says I don't know if that fits, and I, eh. so she went out and and we we ended up uh, going with 198 total. Uh, but he, it's a I think it's a good Bo Jackson haiku. I really do. And and I think people baseball fans and football fans are going. Baseball fans will like it more than football fans. But uh, yeah, so it, the the cutting room floor was tough, Josh. It was it was tough, Sush. It was we didn't know what uh, you know. There were some that I thought should be in, some that we kind of went back and forth on some of these, and uh, ended up settling on the 190 that we did, which I'm satisfied with. But I think some of the ones that did not make the book definitely will be in the running for for a second book for sure.
0: Well, I'm excited that there's already going to be a sequel, but let's go ahead and continue our focus on on the first one. Now, when it comes to inspirations, I mean this question both um, sarcastically, but also literally. Do you think of a topic or does the topic think of you?
1: That's a great question, man. Uh, I think... Both. I think there is a combination of that. You know, when you're outside with your thoughts, I, it, it happens so organically with these haiku. You know, I, I go outside every day I wrote two, and there were days where I wrote 17. It just, I, I never, I feel proud of the fact that I never forced it. I never forced it. There were subjects that I wanted to write about, and then I just thought of things, and that led to another thought, which led to another haiku, which led to another haiku, and then, of course, my, my brain, as you know, is all over the place. So there. A lot of times there was no rhyme or reason, but I, I think that's a really deep question. And I would say it's kind of a combination of those two.
0: Yeah, because we're gonna get into some of these and, and then kind of get into some of the stories that go behind them. But for example, do you just sit there and think like, okay, I wanna do a haiku about Eric Burns. What 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 can I what can I say about Eric Burns? What can I think about Eric Burns? That, that would make for a good haiku, or did your thoughts just, just go in a way and then all of a sudden it ends up with, oh, Bernsey's in my head now?
1: That's the latter for sure. Like, I didn't think, oh, I got to put this guy in my book. I got to put that guy in my book. It, it, if, if it happened, it did. I mean, these are all, like, I, I kind of wanted to, you know, I, for most of my career I've been with the Rivercats, you know, of the 28 years I've been with the River Cats for most of those years, you know, at Cedar Rapids for a few and High Desert. Fresno and then Sacramento. So I think most of, a lot of the haiku, baseball haiku were Sacramento related. I tried to get back in time a little bit with Cedar Rapids and High Desert and, and Fresno, but most of them are, um, there's of a name that specifically is, reminds me of, of Fresno, but I think most of them are Sacramento. So I did think of some players that were were uh, kind of Sacramento based and, and my memories of baseball with them is in Sacramento. So Burns did definitely you know burns was a, you know burns could have been on the cover of the phone book in Sacramento as you know he was big in Sacramento and I wanted to definitely capture that
0: yeah um and, and there's a lot of PCL uh, a lot of different things yeah. from throughout the Pacific Coast League and some Albuquerque ties so all right so let's kind of get into some of my favorites now my original idea was all right I'm gonna pick nine favorites yeah because I thought you know nine innings there's nine players in the lineup and then um, you know, I wasn't even through a hundred pages and I already had gone over nine. So we're just going to have some fun. So okay. I figured that I'll just uh, say like, now I don't want to give away all of the haiku because then no one would buy the book. And by the way, they can go to johnnydosco.com, right? right? a we're going to
1: order right there. And
0: yeah. What if I want a book personally signed by you?
1: They're all personally signed because I sell it on my garage. So they're all, you go to johnnydosco.com and sign up. I'll get the name and, and you can even put notes on who you want it filled out for. On the you know on the on the uh, website, so yeah, so that's uh, johnnydosco.com. dot com.
0: All right, so we're going to start with the first one, page five. The title is Dad on Baseball. Dad raised us this way: never leave a game early, time no element.
1: That's right. Yeah, you know, I, I think that's I'm a lot of things. I I'm really grateful that my dad raised us on Baseball's one of them. And you know, it didn't matter if the score was twelve to one, fifteen to two. Mm-hmm uh my dad would tell us we're not leaving this game, early. We're not leaving until the third out. I remember going with a friend uh to a game with his parents and it was the 7th inning at a, at a at a Angel game I think and they wanted to leave early and I like, I was like what do I don't get it. Like I don't I couldn't grasp it. it didn't it didn't <laughs> I was like what, what the game's not over. It doesn't make sense. And so and so I'm really happy my dad raised me that way and I think you know that's part of the reason I fell in love with the game because the time is no element. And I'm really grateful that he raised us that way.
0: Quick note about my dad. He also believed in staying to the end, except for one famous story. But my dad was also a believer though, that we would stay to the end, but we would walk up the stairs so that we could watch the game from the top. So that as soon as the last out was made, it was an all out sprint to the car, get in the car to try and beat the traffic home that way. We wouldn't leave early but we would start to mosey our way so that we could watch the last out in an area where we're right next to the exit and bolt out to the park. That
1: makes sense. So you're not in those crowds. I like that. I like that. He had the same idea. Just smart about it.
0: All right. This one's really good. Page nine, May 9, 2010. Mother's day special. Dallas Braden's masterpiece lefties. Perfection.
1: That's right. And I want people to know, like, the reason uh, Sush is reading four lines is because I, I title all my haiku. A lot of people don't uh, – some people don't do that, but I put a title on all my haiku. So uh, he's saying the title and, the, and then the haiku. But I thought that particular haiku, um, it was such – I mean, I was emotional watching him, it, that embrace with his grandmother, and that was such a, uh, such a big moment in baseball, I thought, for, for him to be part of baseball history and throw that perfection, uh, throw that perfect game. And uh, I was really happy for Dallas. So that was a that was the moment that I wanted to capture it. That that was the actual May ninth, two thousand ten. The actual day that that he was he was he was perfect. So yeah, I, I love that haiku.
0: Is is it just a coincidence that it's on page nine and it happened on May ninth? Uh, just coincidence. Just a coincidence. Yeah. So it's a good yeah. coincidence. Well, you must have had Braden in the minor leagues. He came through Sacramento, right? Oh yeah. What are some of your Sacramento memories of? A, a yeah, the of
1: Maybe had a 17 strikeout game for us. Uh, in, a, in a, the most strikeouts ever in a for a River Cat in a game. So he he had that piece of history, and he came down and and uh, rehabbed as well many, many times. So yeah, he was he was a character, and and uh, I was really happy to see that that May ninth, 2010. that was neat.
0: I, I remember when Brayden was first going through the minor league ranks and I was covering the A's for the Oakland Tribune at the time. And correct me if I'm wrong, but I thought that that he had the screwball and he was just striking at all these batters with the screwball. And then there was just this perception like, oh, well, you know, it's just because he's got this trick pitch and that's not going to work when he gets higher into baseball or, you know, his arms not going to hold up because of this. By the time that he got to Sacramento, was he still throwing the screwball or how did he kind of evolve as a pitcher with that?
1: He threw a screwball. He just had a great changeup, and you know he's just able to locate so well. I remember a, a particular rehab assignment he had in New Orleans, and he threw sixty straight fastballs. And he really? was actually he was so confident he was telling the hitters what was coming. He's like fastball, you throw a fastball, 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 and he and he, and he dealt. He just he had so much. The guy had so much confidence. And, and uh, just every time he went to the mound, it was like Christmas Day. I, I loved watching him pitch. He's just so enjoyable. But, yeah, I think he, uh, he threw a bunch of different pitches. But, yeah, I think he still threw that, threw that screw ball.
0: Hmm. I love that. Uh, here it comes. And it's yeah. not 99. Right? Nope. Because he threw what, like low 90s? Yeah.
1: Sometimes if that, he, would, he could sit at 88, 89 and still just find a way. He was, he was
0: incredible. That's awesome. That's totally awesome. All right, page sixteen. The title is July thirty-one. Moved at the deadline, he senses his destiny. Part dread, part intrigue.
1: Yeah, you know that. That's uh, you, every every broadcaster. I think can relate to that. And talking to players, when you get to the, you get closer to the deadline, and guys are apprehensive. There's tension there because they don't know if they're going to be dealt. They're excited, but they're kind of dreading it. These are the these are the you know, they have the relationships with these players. And, you know, you go from being with your brothers for years and years, as far as these players go. They're with their brothers year after year, and all of a sudden, bam, they're traded, and it's, it's over. I mean, they still stay in touch, but they're not with them on a daily basis. So I think any time a guy gets traded, especially a young guy, he's, uh, he has mixed feelings, right? He's, he's torn because he's, he's excited that a team wants him, but he feels betrayed sometimes by the team that's dealing him. He's going to miss all his friends, all those relationships, their brothers. And, and I think it's uh, – I like that haiku because it, I think it kind of captures um, what's going on emotionally for, for the player.
0: Yeah, that last week before the training deadline, I mean, it's 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 emotional at the major league level, but it's more about, you know, what superstar is going to come to this team and push them over the edge. And, and in minor leagues, it's different because of what you just said, but there's also some players who are um, – Maybe they're frustrated. They think, oh, this organization's not giving me the chance. You know, then if I was in this other organization, I'd be in the major leagues right now. Um, And then some are just totally blindsided by it. And then any time that someone's name is not in the starting lineup, then all of a sudden, especially if it's a big prospect, like, oh, oh, you know, what does that mean? Or someone gets taken out of the game in the fourth or fifth inning is that because you know they hurt a hamstring or is that because a trade just got finished you know somewhere and and we're on hashtag hug watch right you look in the dugout and if someone comes out and everyone starts hugging him then it's like okay I think that means that he's been traded you don't hug someone who pulled an ankle pulled a hamstring
1: exactly yeah that reminds me too I mean it it was a different situation I remember Derek Barton was um, taken out of a game in the in the fifth inning and it was right I mean, I mean, he, there was all this talk about him getting called up, and uh, so I was saying on the air, I go, you know, this. I tell you what, he got, he got uh, taken out of the game. I'm sure that means he's going up to Oakland. I was just going, <laughs> so somebody, I think somebody even tweeted about it, and it turns out he came out because he, 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 uh, he pulled something, you know. So it's like he, as a broadcast, sometimes you speculate on things. I learned my lesson on that one. Just lay back a little bit until you know. But yeah, that that is, uh, I, I really it's funny to talk about that haiku because there are a lot of emotions in that haiku, you know, because players, and you're right. There are players that you talk to in AAA that are dying to get traded. They're like, please deal me. I want a new start. I don't think this organization is is understanding what I can do on the field. So yeah, we've seen that many times.
0: My first year with the isotopes at AAA uh, was 2013 and it wasn't, the deadline of July 31st, but it was sometime that last week. And we had a double header against the Iowa Cubs and between games, of the double header, I didn't know this at the time, but between games, of the double header, um, the Dodgers acquired Ricky and and Josh wall and Steve Ames, two guys who were in the isotopes bullpen were the guys that were going to the Marlins for it. So you had that trade being completed. And then also, um, What's his name? Lefty Ian Ian Stewart. Yeah, Ian Stewart. Lefty he was a big prospect at one time um, with the Rockies, and then uh, he had been with the Cubs, I think. And the Cubs released him, and then the and then the Dodgers signed him he gets added to the roster. And so, you know, like between games, the doubleheader, you know, you're scrambling to fill the time. You want to eat something. You want to get your lineups done. And all of a sudden I see the lineup and it's like Stewart's. And I'm like, where's Ian Stewart's? The game's going on. You're like, why is Josh Wall and Steve Ames not pitching today? These are the two <laughs> of the best guys in the bullpen. They and not. they haven't pitched in either game of the doubleheader. And then, you, and then it all starts to make sense uh, once you find out the actual news.
1: Exactly. Exactly. I know we've seen that many times. I know it's, we, do, we speculate so much, so much, uh, in triple a on uh on what's going on these guys just just want their shot whether it's with their team or or with another club
0: another haiku is about a guy that i got to know when i was covering the a's and this is page 21 the title is ellie south dakota zone solid player better man mark william ellis
1: yeah i mean that just i mean it says it all right there yeah he's uh he was just such a quality, quality human being. And, a, and a, you know, I think uh, I remember I got a, a a nasty email from a listener who was saying, we get it, he's from South Dakota, because I would say it all the time. Brown ball to short South Dakota, and up with it on the first day. And he was like, please, please, you're wearing it out. We understand where he's from, okay? We get it. But uh, so that made me want to say it even more, just a bugger, you know? So I, would, I would say it again and again. But he was just, uh, yeah, Mark Ellis, I mean, what can you say? He's just a, a great guy. Uh, a great guy and he was he was such a solid solid ball player he played short most of the time for the Rivercats more more second base in the big leagues but uh one of the great defensive players really uh, underrated and a uh, uh, tremendous guy
0: the um I think another thing that broadcasters would wear out as well uh you mentioned shortstop and it just made me remember this when he was at Florida he played shortstop and David Eckstein played second base. That's right. Then they get to the major leagues, and Eckstein, who doesn't have as good of an arm, plays shortstop for the Angels, and Ellis plays second base for the A's, and they were teammates, and I think they were roommates. They were definitely friends. And so you had these two American League West uh, rivals and you know these two guys who were teammates in college together. And, um, you know, I always thought that was like an interesting you know, little with, game within the game of those two guys.
1: Absolutely, and I, I enjoyed watching both those guys play. One thing I remember about Eckstein – on the tangent here, but I, I remember Eckstein, watching Eckstein play and I was amazed at the guy that did not have a great arm, but he always, like he, talk about an internal clock. And I have a, a, a haiku about internal clock in there for short stops. So he had one of the best internal clocks I've ever seen, like made up for his arm and the way he, uh, he, he was positioned well. And then he always knew how fast the runner was. He always seemed to, and we always talk about 90 feet being the perfect, perfect distance home plate to first base but he always had that feel for um, who was running how much time he had made up for the the lack of arm strength with his intelligence over there shorts i always enjoyed watching him play
0: the other thing about mark ellis reaching the major leagues is that you know he, he, he was not a top prospect it was supposed to be jose ortiz remember jose ortiz like he was the guy who was the hot shot prospect and he's the guy who was going to be the second baseman of the future you know, whether or maybe he was going to take the hottest place at shortstop. And now here comes Bobby Crosby. So it's going to be uh, Ortiz that's going to be at second base. And it's going to be Crosby at shortstop. And for whatever reason, it just didn't work out with Ortiz. And Ellis almost became like, the oh, yeah, OK, I guess well, I guess we'll see what Ellis can do. And the next thing you know, he's just this stalwart second baseman for the A's in the early 2000s and carved out like a 10, 12-year career in the major leagues.
1: Yeah, I remember when I had uh, Billy Bean on the air with me and I, I asked him about what I call the throw in, Mark Ellis, and he's looking at me like, "Well, he may have been a throw in for you, but he wasn't for us." Like he, I think they knew they knew what they had in, in this guy, and and uh, he to me he seemed like a throw in in the deal, but but he he certainly wasn't, and uh, he, he proved that. I mean, he what a what a solid player.
0: Yeah, for sure. Uh, before I get to the next haiku, I'm, I'm going to set up this one by saying that there's been numerous times over the last few years that the Isotopes are playing the Sacramento River Cats and the Rivercats bring in this relief pitcher. And I'm looking at his stats, and I'm looking at his baseball reference page, and I'm going through what his numbers were last year and the year before that. And I said so many times on the air, how is it that this guy is still at AAA? All this guy does is dominate the very hitter-friendly PCL, and yet why is this guy still in the minor leagues? And it's on page 27, and the title is Rogers to the Show. Tyler called his twin, could not utter a single word. He didn't have to.
1: Probably, Sue's probably my favorite haiku in there. And just because the, the back story is, and I heard the story basically through Grundage and talked to Tyler about it. But, you know, he he and his twin are, are identical. twins. I mean, incredible. They, they walk the same. They talk the same. They don't pitch the same because, you know, Tyler's, you know, right-hander, submariner, and Taylor with the twins is left-hander over the top. But besides that, everything they do, uh, their voice—it's—it's it's remarkable. It's almost eerie how similar they, they are as identical twins, as a lot of identical twins are. But this is uh, uncanny. And they're, um, you know, when, when he, you know, he, we've, everybody been hoping Tyler would get would get a call up, and does never seem to get that call. Two-time All-Star. Well, finally, when he did, uh, he. First person he called was his twin, obviously his his uh, brother Taylor, and he couldn't even get the words out. You know, he couldn't. He could He was, it was the the tears were here, and I I've been there where the tears are where you can't even talk. And, and uh, again, he didn't have to. Taylor knew exact exactly exactly what it was, and, and uh, just when Brundage told me that story, I was sitting there just weeping in his office, just because and not, not only just. The story itself, but just what he what he's gone through, how he's persevered, and how much it meant to him to get to the big league sound. One thing Chris Shaw said, I think Shaw tweeted it, that he's seen a lot of call-ups through the years, but he's never seen a clubhouse erupt quite the way they did when Tyler was called up. They, they have no one they've never had more joy for another guy getting called up than, than that particular day. And it doesn't surprise me because uh he is such a such a good dude and 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 he had, he had earned it, and he's and you know he proved it last year. Well, he pitched up there, but that was that was an emotional. I got welled up even even writing and just thinking back about uh, about that moment and that that time when uh, when he did get called up.
0: I mean, he had. I mean, that's that's the perfect combination for an emotional call up because he's a good dude. He's put up numbers like every year. His ERA is under two or just over two, and. You know him, how would he, it's really easy to get super salty when you're doing that. How was he when he's not getting called up, even for just like a September cameo? What was he like as he keeps coming back to the PCL again and again? And it's so much harder as a reliever. You have one bad outing, as one of your haiku um, mentioned. You have one bad outing and, and then it takes a month to get your ERA back down to where it was. So how did, how did Tyler um, react during all those years of, of not being where he wanted to be?
1: Well, I'm sure it was frustrating, you know. I mean, I, I think he put on a face a little bit, but obviously, you're putting up those numbers, and not getting called up, and how can you not be be frustrated? But sometimes that frustrate that frustration is good. I never really saw the frustration. I'm kind of on the outside, but but I, I would say that there's no. I can't imagine that you wouldn't be frustrated after after not getting called up after putting up numbers and proving yourself uh, that long. And that happens to guys sometimes. Some guys slip through the cracks. I mean, you look at a guy. I remember back in the day, Paul Smythe, I was surprised. He never got a called up. He put up numbers every year, but the A's just didn't, didn't see a, a use for him. So you'll see that with guys sometimes, and and sometimes it's not just about the numbers. But, yeah, with Tyler, it was it was perplexing, not only to Tyler, but I think to a lot of guys uh, just uh, around uh, and players and media and everybody on why he wasn't – it was surprising that he wasn't getting the call up. But I think he handled it really well. He, I think he put on a face. I think he handled it pretty well for, for – uh, for all those uh, months not getting called up.
0: All right. On to page 32. The title is legendary river cat. And the haiku goes like this. Three, three Homer games, cartoon, like right-handed pop, Chris Carter's mystique.
1: Yeah. I, I there was, you know, I mean, it sounds cliche to say when someone's taking BP, you you don't go get a cup of coffee or a, glass of water you, you 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 stay and watch him Chris Carter I, I don't know how many BPs of his I missed I, I would always watch him take BP because you just don't know what you're gonna see like he his pop was cartoon like and to watch him did you know hit a ball in the ring that was rising as it went over the scoreboard you know it just his he just had that natural pop and I one of those power hitters that I Marvel, I love watching him play. Obviously, you wanted to get called up. We were selfish and had him for a while in Sacramento. And you know, quiet guy, but man, he had some strength, incredible pop, and uh, very just enjoyable, enjoyable to watch. As you, I'm sure you remember him. He's yeah. just so much to watch.
0: Yeah, when when the guys who can put on a show in BP, it's interesting because some of them, like okay, I, I just want to work the opposite field, right? I just want to go the other way. And some are just kind of working on things, and then maybe they, they, they turn it on in, in the last round. And then there's other guys that it's like, no, I'm going to start showing off immediately, right? <laughs> and yeah. So... Well, you know, but even with him though, Suge, like he even if he's working on stuff, he's
1: going to do something impressive. He'll hit one out to right center. Or he'll hit one, you know. Even if he's working on stuff. His pop is so uh, unique uh, that he was he put on a he put on a show every time, and I, I didn't miss it.
0: This is a uh, this is one that's going to make a lot of people smile, even if they're not hardcore baseball fans. Page forty. The title is "Dinner at the Yard." Dinner at ballpark. Two dogs with fixins and beer. For some, nothing better.
1: Yeah, it reminds me just you know when you talk to people and they're you know a, a friend of mine here in town. He, he's like you know one thing I miss the most about going to the River Cats games is sitting down with my dogs. And my beer and watching baseball. You know, that's the one thing. You know, that's the thing I miss the most. And it got me thinking. Like, yeah, that's what I think what a lot of people miss about being able to go see minor league baseball right now. I think they miss that that just sitting down in the sun, relaxing. Whether it's day game or sitting down late, you know, early evening and sitting down with your with your hot dogs and beverage and just in, enjoy some baseball. It's just relaxing for some. There's nothing better than that. And I think that haiku kind of captured it.
0: I I think that so. When I first read that and and I knew that I wanted to ask you about it, my first thought was I don't know if there is any type of food that goes with a sport the way that hot dogs and baseball do. But then I started to think more about it. I don't know if there is any other type of entertainment, regardless of whether it's sports, where there is a food that goes with that entertainment as much like maybe popcorn and popcorn and and movie. movie.
1: That's the, exactly. That's what I was thinking about. Popcorn is another one that I think. Yeah. Yeah.
0: But you know, maybe tennis, you know, breakfast at Wimbledon and they get the, um, um, help me out here. The, uh, the, the, the the strawberries and cream. Yeah, Yeah. 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 Uh,
1: a little bit. That's a little bit of a stretch, yeah. But I, I, I do think the mo- the popcorn movies is a is a good one. That that is, and I think. But I think you're right. I mean, I don't know of anything like maybe hardcore football fans would think otherwise, but I don't think they're baseball and hot dogs. It's it it, it does. It goes together, and, and there's a reason it does. It's just it's a, such a great tradition for a lot of people. You know.
0: Is it also because of whatever? copywriter for Chevrolet wrote that catchy tune we like baseball hot dogs apple pie and Chevrolet like if like if that had not been written would we still feel the same way about baseball and hot dogs I
1: think we still would I think we still would there's something about especially if you grew up I, I grew up in LA you know with the Dodger dogs or whatever I know giant fans would be like but uh, but you know that's I think that the the Dodger dogs and Vince Scully for around. I think that was you know I think that was a tradition, too, so yeah, I think the baseball and hot dogs definitely go together. That's for sure.
0: There is one individual who has two different haiku that are about him, and that is Eric Burns. So let me read the two different haiku. One of them is on page fifty five baseball's Robo Ump argue with Burns-E till dusk, human element, and the second one is on page one twenty one ran a marathon thirty consecutive days only eric burns yeah
1: you know the, it's, it's only eric burns that's for sure he's he's uh he's a different he's a machine he's a different different guy and you know he's uh he's he's wonderful and you know burns you know burns he i think we talked about the robo Ump one time and, and went back and forth on it he, he he just he his whole thing is get the call right you know that that's his whole thing i don't care get the call right we have the technology to take advantage of it my whole thing is like look I understand it's not going to be perfect all the time. I understand you're going to have Don Dinkinger. I understand you're going to have Jim Joyce. I understand you're going to have, you know, missed calls, you know, as Herzog said, an umpire cost me the World Series, an umpire won me the World Series, right? And right. I, I like that. I like that it's fallible. I like. I miss the, the, the arguments. I miss – I like the fact that baseball, you know, in some ways is so perfect, in other ways it's imperfect. And I, I like the fact that uh, – that umpire can make a make a costly mistake i don't like it for that team but that's so that's where we go back and forth it's a difference of opinion you know and, and so i will forever argue with bernsey about that i think you know we just feel differently about it you know but of course he's coming from a player perspective i'm coming from a media perspective where i, I like i like that but he's he's like get it right get the call right and as far as his superman i mean he literally you know he ran you know on his his journey across the united states he went from California to uh, New York or something. And he, he literally ran over 25 miles, 30 straight days, which is, it's just mind You can't even, it's mind boggling. You can't put your your mind around it. You can't put your arms around it. It's impossible. And so, uh, you know, he's, he's um, triathlon guy. He's, he's you know, in his book of world records for the fastest uh, 72 holes, I think golf, you know, I, he's amazing. And, you know, I got a chance, uh, To see him uh, run uh, for it, you know, he he basically runs however many miles, however old he is, he runs that many miles. So when he turned thirty-eight, he ran thirty-eight miles that day. When he turns 40, 40 miles that day. He turned forty. That's how he's. That's how he's a machine. It's incredible. I can't even run to the bus stop, right? Like this guy. This guy. It's amazing. And uh, so I. I, He he definitely. should be honored with a haiku being Superman. Well,
0: oh, yeah, he got two haiku. Now, w- do you remember the first time that you met him or just when you realized, like, okay, he's not just putting on a show today. This is He's not just, like, amped up today. That's who he is every second of his life.
1: Yes, and I'm not surprised in the least that he went into uh, – broadcasting and media after his playing days because he would i would love to talk ball with him when he was a player and you know bernsey like me we're both we're similar in that we're both close talkers so we were we would we would be like nose to nose and you know i don't have a small nose would be nose to nose talking and like it would be like he would be right there right right in my face and, I, and so uh you know the the pandemic's Pretty bad for guys like me and him, because as close talkers, (laughs) you got to kind of stay away, right? Right. (laughs) Unable to close talk, so. But yeah, I'll never forget just having Burns on the team and his energy every single day uh, was 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 pretty cool. I
0: have I have a lot of Eric Burns stories, but the two that that stand out in my mind the most when I was covering the A's was that. There was a spring training game in Phoenix, and Burns was playing left field, and there was a couple of different balls that he lost to the Sun. And, and the Sun can be really hard in, at Phoenix Muni. but um, I remember just asking him, like, some sort of question, like, well, how bad was the Sun or something like that? And, and Burns' answer was something like, was it the worst Sun in the history of mankind that has ever been at a ballpark? No, but it was pretty close <laughs> or something like that. And then the other, and then the other one was it, oh geez, it was a road game. It was somewhere back east, maybe it was New York or Boston or Baltimore or whatever. And he had a tough day in the field with a number of different plays. And I remember like, um, you know, like somebody asked him a question about like a play that he that he misplayed, and you know, and he gives like an answer to that, and then um, and then somebody else asked him, well, what about you know in the fifth inning, like blah 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 play? And he was just like, oh yeah, and he's really candid about that. And then and then I kind of went in for the jugular because now there was like a third bad play to ask him about, you know, and he was like, Oh yeah. He's like, nice game burns. <laughs> right. Just Third person himself in a negative way. Nice game burns.
1: Right. He does that. I love that. it's just, yeah, that's him. That's phenomenal. That's great. Just chapping himself. So good.
0: All right. Page 56. One swing changed his life. Travis T Ishikawa, etched in Giants lore. Yeah,
1: you know, uh, my sister and I were at that game. Uh, I attended that game with my sister, and uh, yeah, you know, he, he doesn't. He says, you know, when I talked to him, he said, "I, I it, not too many days go by that people don't ask me about the home run, right?" So he's like, "I mean, he's in he's in Giants lore forever. Like that, that swing was. Uh, you, when you think of him, you think of." pandemic clinching home road, right? And yeah. Uh, yeah, it was, it was, it was amazing. And,
0: and, and to me, the amazing part about it is that, you know, Ishikawa at one point was, was this pretty good prospect. I remember um, that he was going to go to college and the Giants took a flyer on him in the 20th round and they signed him for like way over what a 20th rounder would get. And so, you know, they had high hopes for him and it never quite panned out. He was supposed to be like the next JT Snow and bounces around a couple of organizations. And then he ends up back with the Giants and, I want to say he's probably spent most of that year with you there at AAA Sacramento, and you know it's not like, you know it's not like this Joe Carter who's like a you know was a multi All Star. I mean Ishikawa, it's like why is he on the team? Why is he on the roster? And like that one swing just changed his entire life, his entire career.
1: It did for sure. And what a, what a quality human too. You know you know you get to know him. You're like wow, I'm glad that happened to that guy. Right? Is he's he's just quality and uh, just. Yeah, I'll never forget it. You know, my sister is a diehard Giants fan. I mean, she loves the Giants, and she talks about that home run all the time. Like, it's been it a lot to a lot of people that have that were uh, have Giants fans for their
0: whole lives. All right. This one on page 77 is something that doesn't happen very often uh, in a game, and it goes like this. Eric Patterson, great name from River Cats past, stole home, stole their hearts. Yeah. He stole home?
1: Yeah. Eric Patterson had a steal of home, and the fans went nuts. Straight, straight steal of home? Straight steal of home. It wasn't no. a first and third. It was a straight steal of home. Got a great jump. Got in there. Safe. Boom. Uh, and, uh, yeah, he was uh, – Rivercat fans loved him. They Every Rivercat fan I talked to loved Eric Patterson, loved watching him play, loved his whole game. He was great with the fans, nice person. I, so, I, you know, it was – yeah, It, it was uh, he stole their hearts for sure.
0: The first time I saw somebody steal home was a high school baseball game that I was covering for the Oakland Tribune. And I remember just seeing this guy, and he was getting like a lead, and he was kind of like he, there was a couple of pitches where he was kind of measuring him, And I remember just thinking in my head – I was not broadcasting, I was just writing then. And I remember just thinking, oh, he's just trying to get in the pitcher's head and just trying to get a balk out of him, you know. Uh, but then all of a sudden, here he comes home, and it's almost like you don't breathe. When you see someone is running home and there's a pitch being thrown, is the batter going to swing or not? Catcher has to catch it and then apply the tag. And this this high school kid, I'll never remember what his name was. Um, I mean, it wasn't even close. So it's almost like he beat the pitch home. He was so fast. I mean, like this straight steal of home. Again, I think you just hold your breath when it happens. It does. I think it's, I think
1: one of the more exciting things to call as a broadcaster is a steal of home and a suicide squeeze. Those two things. There's something about its fast. You know, if your timing's off just a little bit, you don't nail the call. So it has to be perfect. It's not even really you have to anticipate it. You just have to be right on it. Um, and so that that's always – the steel at home is always uh, exciting for a, for a play-by-play broadcaster. And, and Eric Patterson was, was a really, uh, really exciting player to watch. whether anybody did in the field and, uh, you know, watching him uh, – you know, he never really – you know really excelled too much in the big leagues but i'll tell you in triple a he was he was he was really fun to watch All
0: right, i'm going to skip ahead to page 132 because there's a couple of players who i will uh mention in a moment but first let me read the haiku from page 132 seen it a few times a pitcher struck with the yips his teammates whisper
1: yeah it is it is really uh, – it's really hard to watch, man. It really is hard to watch when you see a player with the yips. Uh, it's uh, everybody – you know, it's – I talk to players who, who have seen it and, and you just – it's hard because you want to give uh, – this is from their perspective. They say you want to give him encouragement, but you don't really want to address it. You don't want to talk about it. You kind of want to stay away from him, but you want to – you know, so – it, it puts it, – it, I feel like his teammates, they whisper to each other about it, but they're almost afraid to approach the particular player when the player does have the yips. I think now it's different because there's, you know, so much um, – there are so many people to reach out to. You have psychologists on the team, on the big league team you can talk to, and there's you know, meditation. It just – I think back in the early 2000s and the 90s, a player had the yips. It was different from the player having the yips now, you know. So I, I – but I think it's really – Uh, it's, it's scary to watch, you know, it really is. And, and players that have it, pitchers that have it, it's, it's, um, you just feel, you feel so badly for them and you just hope they can overcome it, you
0: know? Yeah. So, you know, there, there's a lot of different names for the yips. Some call it the beast. Some call it the thing. Some call it the monster. And for like a second baseman, like Steve Sachs, he overcame it. Um, Chuck Knobloch could not, they had to move him to left field. I remember Mackie Sasser, the catcher, had a thing where he couldn't throw the ball back to the pitcher. He had to lob it, and ultimately, yep. like, it ended his career. Yes. Um, Dale Murphy actually had the same thing. They moved him to right field, and it saved Murphy's career, um, you know, became a multiple MVP yeah. uh, in the outfield. You think of pitchers, and Mark Woolers comes to mind. Um, Rick and uh, Rick Ricky yep. and yeah, of course, Steve Blass. Yeah. Uh, but there's two pitchers. Um, Daniel Bard, who has made this phenomenal comeback with the Rockies, he's off to a great start after being out of the game for a couple of years, hadn't pitched in the major leagues in like five or six years. And then Tyler Matzik and, you know, talking about it as a broadcaster on the air, Matzik got sent down by the Rockies to the isotopes. And, uh, he, he was struggling with it with his walks and it was something where he had the yips and earlier in his career, he had kind of beaten it. And then he started to get wild again, the Rockies sent him down to Albuquerque and in the first inning, Johnny, oh my goodness, it was just it was just one walk after another, right? Um, you know, and it was and it was like the types of walks where it's like it's not just missing, right? It's like the it's like the batter is like starting to move out of the way because the ball is coming toward him. It's just four yeah. pitch walk and a hit by pitch, and it's just like this collective oh no throughout the ballpark everywhere. Um, and I'm just so proud of Tyler. He's come back. Uh, I think he's with the Braves as a reliever he's pitching really well, what Daniel Bard has done. Yeah. I think again, um, the word that you used on the haiku whisper gets you, you know, that's what happens. And now we can all kind of like, just be so happy for them because you see how it affects their self esteem. You know, they don't want to laugh. They don't want to smile. They don't, they can't enjoy their food. It just becomes this all encompassing thing in their head.
1: Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. It's really, it's, uh, it's it's sad to watch. You know, uh, there was a – I'm not going to name the pitcher's name, but there was a pitcher with the River Cats in 04 that had – and they called it the thing, you know, not – you know, it's called the thing too. And uh, I remember uh, Calvin Murray uh, was on Vegas, and this particular pitcher hit Murray with a – he tried to – the pitcher threw a slider and hit Murray, I think got him in the, in the helmet. Didn't get him too badly. Got him in the helmet, though, the first and I remember seeing um, – Murray later, and he goes, "Why why didn't you tell me this guy had the thing?" I go, "Like I, 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 it was my responsibility to tell you the thing, but it was, but it was, it was obvious that this particular pitcher. I think he threw like sixteen out of seventeen balls, right? Like threw got one foul ball, but sixteen, almost basically sixteen straight balls, and he was all over the place. He hit hit a batter. Uh, He was he was a mess. But it it it, you know, and it was it was kind of more of a hush hush thing back then, kind of a whisper. Uh, But now it's a little more." You know, talked about more, more uh, outlets for, I think, guys to get help with that. But it, it's, when you see a guy with the yips, it's, uh, it's pretty scary.
0: This is a unique one. I didn't know about this one. This is page 142. Chris Shaw loves ABBA. He ain't afraid to admit owns his walk-up song.
1: He does. Dancing Queen is his walk-up song, and he loves it, and he and he stands by it, and I respect that. And you know, it's not the most. You know, when guys are coming up to Metallica and other stuff, and he's coming up to Abba, I respect that. I love that. I, I think it's, I think it's fantastic. I love that he's like, he's he's good with it, man. And it's and it, it's a catchy tune. And you know, he, he I remember he went up to that walk-up song for the first time, and he had a three-run homer, and then he did it again, and then he hit a walk. He had a walk like he kept with that. I think he had a seven RBI night and. I think five of those RBIs, I think, I don't know, if, I can't remember, but I remember he had a big night when that, when he first put on that that walk-up song. And, and uh, I'll have to go through the scorebook and see exactly what he did, but I know he dominated, and so he stuck with it. He's like, I'm sticking with that walk-up song. And, he, and it followed him to San Francisco. They played in San Francisco too. So, uh, yeah, he's, he, he ain't afraid to admit it. He's an ABBA guy, and he's a Dancing Queen guy, and I respect it.
0: Most of the haiku in this book are about sort of more modern within like the last 20 years or so. But on page 144, uh, this has got to be something from the uh, early 70s. The title is Spire's Debut. This would be Chris Spire, a longtime uh, major leaguer, then became coach and manager. Turned around, saw Mays. Looked to left, saw McCovey. Shook his head in awe. Yeah. You know, did he uh, tell you about that? In
1: yeah. Virginia? Spire was the skipper that I broadcast for in 97 with High Desert with the Diamondbacks. And uh, we uh, he would always joke we'd work out together and he would do like 15 pull-ups. And he goes, did you do your pull-up? Because I could do one. Did you do your pull-up? <laughs> so but but he was great I hung out with him the whole year and he told me that story he's like you know he goes I'm sitting there I look turn around I see Willie Mays I look to my left I see Willie McCovey I'm like what is going on here what what how is this how is this happening to me I'm 21 years old why, why? I don't get it you know he was just in all. I've chills even talking about that right now but uh you imagine that your debut and so he he shared that and I, that stuck with me I always thought about that so I just when I was outside I, I recollected that and uh I just, I wrote it down and it's just, it speaks for itself. I mean, it's pretty cool.
0: Yeah. And and I think that that, I think that no matter who the, the, the rookie is, who's make, making their debut at a certain point, you know, maybe the, the words don't come to their, to their mind the way that they did for Chris Spire that day. But yeah, you kind of look around, like if you're nowadays and you get called up and Nolan Aranato is, is, is to my right and Charlie Blackman, you know, is out there in the outfield and it's like, Whoa, you know, and you know, whether or not those two guys become hall of famers, like, like Mays and McCovey, you know, it's kind of a different story, but just the whole idea that just the awe that I'm here and these guys who maybe they were a poster on my wall or they were part of my baseball card collection and now they're my teammates or now this pitcher's trying to get me out.
1: It's true. You talk to guys and I ask them, how long does it take you to get over the ESPN thing? How long does it take you to get over the fact that I see this guy on ESPN and now I'm facing him, you know, and then they get him out and they say, well, maybe I belong. And then they, you know, uh, another haiku in there about the five straight fastballs, where the guy faces his idol, he throws five straight fastballs. The fifth one goes a mile, right? Like, so, it, but it's it's true. It's like these guys face these guys that they look up to, and all of a sudden they're 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 there, and they're you know, it's 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 really mind boggling. Pretty cool.
0: Page one sixty seven. The title is Stephen Votes Road, and it goes like this: Backup Single A, two time Major League All Star, Big League Manager.
1: Yeah. And I'm obviously looking forward a little bit. You know, I, I feel he will be a major league manager, but that's kind of, that was his road. He was a backup in single A and about ready to give up the game. Like he was, he wasn't sure where he was going with it. And, uh, he, he, um, you know, he found a way to persevere and, and, uh, he's just a great story. You know, he was over his first, whatever it was, everybody knows what he, what he did. He went, you know, he was, didn't get a hit with the Rays despite hitting the ball on the mic, uh, uh, double Rays at that point. It's, it's or were they, they were the Rays, right? They yeah, I think so. Yeah. So anyway, but, but, you know, obviously he hit the ball hard and never got anything and then got to the A's took a little while with the A's and then he just got rolling. But I think it's pretty cool that, you know, here's a backup at single A uh, and he goes from there, works his way and, and a late bloomer as far as getting to the big leagues. And and the rest is history. i think he's going to be a, good solid major league manager he has the gift he has the gift with the media he has a gift with the players his communication skills are off the charts he knows the game he loves the game uh he listens Uh, I think he and uh, you know I I just think he's going to be a really solid league manager
0: do you remember what it was like when he was in Sacramento and he got back to the major leagues
1: yeah yeah, I, I, I mean, I remember it well. And, he, you know, he I, the thing is, he you know, he, he never snibbed about being down. That was the, the one thing I remember. When he went to A. he never complained once about being in. He said, you know what, that's how I feel. I'm going to work my way back up. And I, I'm telling you, this guy is, the, you know, say any cliche you want, but this guy is um, solid. And I think, you know, because he's experienced – Everything as a player, you know, he's experienced being released. He's experienced getting the call. He's experienced being an all-star. He's game when he gets, you know, game when he hit in the, in the in the in the playoffs, you know. Uh, and he's, he's experienced some of the hardships of baseball as well, um, injuries, everything. I think he can relate to everything that a player goes through, and I think that's going to help him too. But I think just the fact that he went, got sent down and never complained and worked his way back up says a lot about his character, and, and he, uh, you know, proved he was a pretty good player. He's still, he's a backup right now with the Diamondbacks contributing, so.
0: This one was a, uh, on page 175, was uh, one where it started to hit home about the coronavirus, and, um, you know, you may not think that you know somebody, but for people in the A's organization, um, this one kind of hit home. The title is Webby, and it goes like this. Webster Garrison, you lift everyone you meet our time to lift you.
1: Yeah. And you know, I don't know anybody that has met Webby uh, that has not come around to, that's a great guy. I love that guy. Like he, he has lifted everybody he meets every time you meet, Hey, what you feel like you're the most important person in the world. When you, when you talk to him, you feel like, wow, that guy's like, he really, he, he, he loves everybody and he lifts everybody he meets. And then, you know, he's going, he got uh, coronavirus. He, he got COVID and he was on a ventilator for, for a long time. and, you know, still recovering, uh but it was just heartbreaking to a lot of people because of what what he means to so many people. So I think it, that i basically saying, "Look, it's our our turn. It's our time to lift you after you lifted everybody up. Now it's our time to lift you."
0: For people who don't know Webster Garrison, explain like who he is and what he does. You know, because some people may not know if he's a player, if he's a coach. Kind of get more about who he is.
1: Yeah, Webster Garrison's a coach in the A's organization. He's been there for years. Done everything the A's asked him. They asked him to go to a, a Single A goes single A. They ask him to go double A. We'll go to double A. I ask him to do, whatever, people do that. whatever they ask. He is done. And the and the A's are one of the most loyal organizations. Let's be honest about it. They're a very loyal organization. And and so, uh, you know, yes, I think you know with Webby, he's done. Uh, he's a guy that the, the A's love, and, and and he he loves them. And I think he's just one of those guys that everybody who's met him in baseball, from scouts to players to other coaches uh, management, uh, you meet Webby and you're going to smile. He, he just, he makes you smile. And I remember when he, um, uh, filled in sometimes for, uh, for Tony D when Tony De Francesco was managing, He and the A's have their four day break they have for, for all their coaches. He would come in and he'd come into New Orleans and it was always for not, every time he came in, it was, it was great. He's just, uh, just a joy to be around. And I'm so happy he's, he's recovering now because he means a lot to a lot of people.
0: Well, the Duke City gets a little shout-out here on page 186. The title is Klein and the Great Frontier, and it goes like this. After game dinners, Frontier and Albuquerque, always with Kleiner. Always with Kleiner,
1: always great food, and always great stories. We would stay at the the Frontier for a couple hours, uh, two, three hours after the game. close the place, not really close the place, down 24-7, but we would be there Late and just uh, eat a lot of food with Kleiner and have a good Kleiner. By the way, looks incredible right now. He's lost. Really? So yeah. Oh my God, he's awesome. He looks so good right now. Uh, but we would late night. We would go to a Great Frontier, the Frontier in Albuquerque, and we would on Central uh,
0: Avenue, right across the street from the University of New Mexico. It's an yep. institution. Institution,
1: and, and just we we would. Uh, it was just. I I love that. I, I miss. I miss. Uh, you know, one thing I, I miss about. It's, it's calling the games, of course, and being around everybody, but also the, the, the food, like all oh, the restaurants we went to uh, in in the different cities. I missed that. That was fun. Where are you going to lunch? Where are you going after the game? You know, I, I missed that. That's the one aspect. that was always Frontier with Klein. Uh, every night he go. As soon as Klein discovered that place, he never didn't go there. Like every night he goes, I go, where are you going? I would joke, like, where are you going? We'd laugh. Like, of course you're going there. So yeah, it's great, great spot.
0: Yeah. So Steve Klein, a longtime major leaguer, probably most known for his time with the Cardinals uh, pitching coach for the Rivercats there for a number of years. I remember once I, uh, I dropped you guys off and I was like, no, that's all right. I'm uh, I I don't like the post game meal, Uh, but I remember I dropped you guys off. Um, I can't just imagine you say like all the stories, like, the stories that that guy must have from his, from his playing career, from his coaching career, like the teammates that he's had, the the playoff experiences that he's had, like those gotta be just some, just really memorable stories. Not only the knowledge, Sush, but the
1: way he tells a story. You cannot, I mean, he is the most entertaining storyteller I've ever met. He's just so much fun to listen to. And I can listen to him all night. He just was so, all the different people that he, he knows the way he puts things. Uh, he's got his own language, and uh, yeah, it was—he's uh, <laughs> hilarious. I just—I miss that guy. He, he was—he was always fun to—always fun to hang with.
0: And you said he's lost a bunch of weight, and he's—he's and he's looking great.
1: Oh, uh, he looks awesome. He looks awesome. He's doing Good. a lot of walking. He's—I back home in Pennsylvania, and he's doing a lot of walking. And uh, yeah, he's, he looks really happy.
0: That sounds like a good future podcast. Maybe I'll record it at the frontier if he ever comes back to Albuquerque.
1: Yeah, for sure. I'll do it at the frontier. That'd be yeah, great. At the, yeah, at the frontier.
0: Sure. Uh, oh, yeah, that, good. I'm all right. Um, I got three more for you. Yeah. Because again, I don't want to give away all of them. But I got three more. Page 192. I, I don't know. You need to tell me the story behind this. The headline is not my proudest moment. And the haiku goes like this. Made kid cry on air. Nine-year-old spelling bee champ. He missed decision.
1: Yeah. Well, there was a yeah. It was I think 2001, my first year with the with the River Cats. Might've been 2002, but there was a kid. They say hey, we're going to have a, a a special kid with you on the air. He's a spelling bee champion. He's a homeschooled kid, I mean, he's a spelling bee champion. He won this this uh, this spelling bee title against. I, I can't remember, but he's supposed to be apparently a really good uh, really good speller. So, in the middle of the, the interview between pitches, I said, Okay, I got one for you. Spell the word decision. And he goes, D I. And I go, eh, I buzzed him. And I look over, and tears are coming down his face. Like, and I'm looking down at his, back at his dad, and his dad's giving me the evil eye. And I'm like, Oh my God, what am I going to do here? It's the two two pitch, Mrs. High, three and two. I said, uh, said, Spell uh, river cats. And he spelled it right, and I'm like, good boy, good job, good job.
0: Wait, that, that, did he spell it as it's one word, or as if it's, it's two words?
1: It is two words, but I didn't care. I, he, just, he spelled it, and I, I just was, yeah, I was just desperate for him to spell a word correctly. But, yeah, that was bad. I mean, he was crying. mean, I say crying, he was, he was bald, in this kid, uh, he was a young kid. He must have been, he was nine, maybe, nine or ten.
0: And you made him cry on the air.
1: I made him cry on the air. He, he was bawling his eyes out. Yeah,
0: yeah. <laughs> way to go, Dosky.
1: Yeah, nice work. And you know, yeah, I mean, it's, uh, I, yeah, it, w- it wasn't my proudest moment. Let's put it that way.
0: And that's why it's the headline of the of, of, of the haiku. That's right. Uh, two left, and this is one that that hit me more than I thought that it was going to hit. Me. And um, when when it comes to okay, there wasn't baseball for a long time and then the minor league season officially gets canceled. And, you know, we're trying to figure out, you know, what we're going to do with our lives and what we're going to do summer wise. And, uh, the, the, the headline for this one is July 4th fireworks. And, and I know that again, this is the day that it hit me because for 99% of minor league baseball teams, they're 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 the day you look forward to is Independence Day weekend. Every minor league team gets a firework night either July 3rd or July 4th which means you're always traveling the morning of July 4th but to me that, like that just summarizes minor league baseball and this Rockwell painting that we tried to do every night at the ballpark and so your haiku goes like this a 605 start a crisp two-hour baseball game stalling for fireworks
1: yeah yeah and you know I think that that's actually a true story because that happened with the River Cats. we had we had one year where uh, we had a uh, four-hour game on July 3rd or 4th, whatever it was, and uh, by the time the fireworks got going, most of the kids were asleep on their parents' shoulders. So, our, our uh, director of marketing, whoever it was, the next year said, "You know what? That's not going to happen again. We're going to do a 6:05 start. We're going to do it, and so so, we're, so kids aren't going to sleep on their shoulders." And what happens? It was the game was like an hour. It was like yeah, it was a two-hour game. It was a two-hour game. So and it was still light. So the, so the, 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 entertainer, the PA and everything, they had to stall the game for, you know, they stalled it for an hour before you could start the fireworks Before it was dark, you know, July 4th, it gets dark late. So that's, I'm sure in a lot, I'm sure it's happened to a lot of cities where you maybe start a little bit earlier and you have to stall for the fireworks. So it's
0: effective. You know? Yeah. That's happened in Albuquerque. It might've even happened when you were uh, with us because um, it wasn't that long ago. And um Yeah. I remember John Traub, I think our GM got on the mic and basically, or maybe the PA announcer said, you know, would you rather we start the fireworks now or wait 30 minutes until it's pitch black? Yeah. You know, because two pitchers were just dealing and yeah, the game gets over. I remember there was one time too that we were in Tacoma and it was uh, I think it was summer solstice and yeah, another like six Oh five start quick game. And um, we get to the ninth and there's no way they could have set the fireworks off. But as it turned out, someone scored in the ninth inning to tie it up and it went 11 innings. And then by the time the game ended, it was, it was, you know, the lights had taken full effect and, and you could shoot off the fireworks and it worked out perfectly. It was like one of the rare times that you wanted a game to go extra innings. It, at least for me, I never want like the biggest crowds. When you know that most of them are just there for fireworks. I don't want them to have to like, wait, and wait, and wait. Right. Like right, I just want yeah. like a, like a nine inning game. Okay, and now you can shoot off the fireworks. But um, sometimes the, those things are a little bit different.
1: Yeah, and that's the thing about AAA. It's like it, in the minor leagues, it's different than the big leagues. You know, you you, you have to kind of think of these to stall and try to get the fans. Uh, you know, keep them entertained before before the uh, fireworks kind of take full effect. Lights take full effect.
0: Last one is the best one. It's how you end it. Page one ninety nine, and this harkens back to the title of the book. It goes like this, ever since her birth, in my broadcast conclusion, my words, good night, Em. Yep.
1: Yeah, I said that every, you know, it's funny. I, I actually, my old athletic trainer, Walt Horn, in 2006, uh, before the season started, I, I think it was before the season started, we were talking, he goes, you know, you, want, you should, uh, you should honor Emmy every night say goodnight to her after every broadcast he told, me, and I said that's a great call I got emotional when he told me that you know and and uh, so I I started doing it I never stopped I still do it now you know I still it's only after every nightly broadcast because during the day obviously she's gonna be up a few more hours but at night I say I say goodnight M, after every broadcast and I uh, it's something that uh you know it's um it's just emotional it's emotional for me to to um to just honor her with those those words you know it's funny because i heard uh, in like five years later that billy crystal movie came out and in that he's a minor league he's a triple-a broadcaster and he says goodnight to his to his daughter on the air and i'm like what well, they, they stole that
0: for five years
1: but it was uh but it was it's something obviously and, and you know as far as the title of the book uh, it was it was kind of a, a no-brainer you know my wife actually uh we were thinking of a title. What should we name this book? You know, what should we name this book? And she goes, "I." She goes, "I got it." As soon as she said it, I'm like, "I knew for sure." That's yeah, because I, I'm gonna honor my daughter every night with uh, with the good night M. So yeah, it's, I, I love that. It's you know, it's it's something that you know means a lot to her. As a Matter of fact, you know, she'll she won't listen to the, the games, but she'll turn. You know, Deb will tell her when uh, my wife will tell her when the when the um, when it's getting toward the end so she can hear it. She still likes hearing it uh, at the end of the broadcast.
0: Well, obviously when she was first born, she couldn't, she couldn't hear it. She wouldn't right. be awake and but you right. were saying it to her anyways. Do you recall approximately what age or what year when she first started to, to realize my dad says goodnight to me on the radio when he signs off?
1: Uh, I think about, uh, about, uh, five or six, Okay, about five or six years old. Yeah. That's, uh, yeah. I think that's when she started to start to realize yeah, yeah, it. Cool. Yeah.
0: What did, um, what did Emily think when she found out that the name of your book was going to be good night.
1: She was pretty touched. She's 14 now. She was pretty touched by it. Yeah. She she, she loved it. Um, and, uh, you know, she's, uh, she's actually helped me out. She keeps track of all the addresses and what we send out and everything. So she's actually working, working, uh, for me, for the book. So yeah. So I pay her for that and it's great. She she loves it. It's a, it's uh, it, it was honestly, it was such a fun project. It was so, it happened so organically. I was outside and just writing haiku and after haiku. And then I'm like, you know what, after a couple of weeks, I'm like, I'm going to put this into a book. So it, it was so cool to kind of the way it, the way it, I didn't just sit down and start writing haiku. I'm going to write a haiku book. It happened where it was really natural. and And I made sure that I never forced it. As I said, there were times where I, go out there and didn't write, but a couple haiku. And then other times I wrote a bunch. So I never really had uh, i I would say I never really had writer's block because I never forced it. You know, I feel like they write themselves, but a lot of times you do have to fit the syllables in, you know, I'll tell you this. I had not, I had a close call because I remember waking up, I wrote the Travis Ishikawa haiku and I I had written all the haikus and I woke up in a sweat at like 3 a.m. and I said, oh my gosh, The Ishikawa haiku is five, seven, six. It was forever giants lore, right? Forever. Yeah. So that's six. It was forever giants lore. And I woke up and said, Oh my gosh, I better check these nine high nine haiku were, uh, off on a syllable, nine of them. So thank God. So I went back in and I, I got it all taken care of and you know, so yeah. And all things revealed, there are, in the original copies, there are two misspellings in the book. So, so the, the new copies are coming to 500. People say, why are you telling them? I want to get it out there. Get it off my chest. There are two misspellings in the book. They're embarrassing. They're people's, people's names. We'll tell you what they are. You can figure it out if you get the original copies. But the new 500 that are coming in will be mistake-free. So you have the, I still have 200 more of the collector's item with the two mistakes people right now have a choice to go janedasco.com they can go mistake free or they can go the original copy with okay yeah. all right yeah um, that's, why you, that's why you don't self edit Hasher. you don't self edit you can't <laughs> sell. that that's one yeah. thing a rookie rookie author rookie haiku writer yeah you don't you, you get people to look at it
0: one of the things that just makes this whole project really cool that that I'm realizing as we've been talking here is that just what a family project it was, you know, it's named after your daughter. She's helping you with the addresses. Your wife comes up with a title. Your sister lets you know that haiku is singular and plural. You know, she comes from um, a, a writing background and, and, uh, and a, a bookstore. And so it's just such a great family experience for you Thank guys you. all to contribute to this. Yeah, appreciate
1: that. My brother, who is my idol, uh, you know, I mean, he's, I mean, I'm not even one one hundredth a writer he is. A huge, his haiku, they're, they're another level, but uh, he was really, he, he really liked the book, which made me feel really good because he's a he's a he's uh, one of the smartest people I know, and he's, uh, I respect his opinion, and he, he really did, uh, he really did like the book, so it was, yeah, it really was a family project, it was pretty cool.
0: All right, Dosky. This was uh, this was fun. I love it. Uh, love talking to you about the process and hearing all the stories. And, uh, I mean, shoot, we only did like a fifth of them, which, um, uh, I mean, it's always great seeing you and talking to you, but this was uh, – I really enjoyed this.
1: Me too. Appreciate that. Hey, johnnydosko.com. johnnydosko.com. Thanks.
0: What's the website again? Shameless plug.
1: <laughs> Shameless plug.
0: Wait, how, how do you spell johnnydosko.com?
1: Yeah, it, yeah. <laughs> well, Dosko. johnnydosko.com. B-O-S-K-O-W. That's right. I All right, Josh. Awesome.
0: Yeah. Um, uh, be well. I know that we'll be in touch plenty, but uh, once again, thanks for your time. Congratulations. This is uh, this is very impressive. Thanks my friend. Thank you. That was Johnny Dosco and this is life around the seams.